Let's pray, church. Thank you, Sorcy. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word as we gather around it. Lord, thank you for the anchor that your word is, Lord. That in any time, Father, you've given us a love letter filled with hope, filled with truths, God, filled uh, with instructions on how, God, we are to live as people underneath your good and kind rule. So, Father, we just ask that as we gather around this time, we would continue to worship you now with our minds. God, giving you our attention, giving you our focus. And uh, as you're there in your seat, I just ask that you'd have a little conversation with God wherever you are in your spiritual walk. And would you just say something to him like this? Say, Lord, speak to me today. Just there in the quietness of your heart. Lord, speak to me today. For I intend to obey. For I intend to obey. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. All right. All right, how are we doing today, church? Ready to dig into God's Word and uh, gain comfort and truth from Him? So we're in this series, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, as we started off last week, you know, just looking at the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is speaking to crowds of people. If you have a Bible or your Bible with you, you can see in chapter 4, there were huge crowds gathered around Him. And, um, and man, there was a ton going on as he's speaking to all these people. And this weekend, as uh, we experienced as a city and really as a nation, the tragedy that happened again at the Municipal Center, um, I had intended to start the message by saying this, the world is in the process of decaying. And now we see as the veil is sort of pulled back, right? Slowly but surely rotting. And not only uh, is the world and civilizations and nations decaying, but that happens because morals are decaying. That happens because lives and lifestyles are decaying. That happens because individuals are decaying because of sin. And sometimes as believers, right, we forget. Some of us are so far removed from the darkness, we forget because we've been a Christian for a while now, we forget that the rest of the world is plunged into darkness every day. There is fear. There is terror on people's minds. There is hopelessness. There is purposelessness. There is the fear of the abduction of one's child. There is the threat of cancer and disease. There is the fear of growing old and feeble. There is the the fear of financial reversal and marital fidelity and emotional and anxiety breakdowns. There's constant darkness. Fear, threat, terror. And people live like that every day. It's dark. Amen? And now we've seen it in our own community. And it's made even more clear. I wonder if we have any idea. But I think we do even more clearly. Any idea what it's like to live under that kind of darkness without one hope of light, without one grain of salt that we remember what it's like to live in that kind of darkness? What does this news do to the average citizen, right? And and the reality is, this is not new. It's happening day in and day out. This weighs upon us. It brings fear and anxiety. 
what is the answer? People that ask what everybody's talking about, right? You listen to the news, listen to your friends, and, and everybody's kind of discussing that. What is the answer? And, and you can't know the answer until you really know the problem, right? Because if you, if you start from the wrong problem, you'll, you'll give the wrong solution, right? If, if your car is dirty, right, you're not going to say the answer is to put gas in it, right? No, your car is dirty. It needs to be what? It needs to be washed, right? If your car has no tires on it, you're not going to say, oh, it just needs an oil change. You've got to know what's wrong in the first place. What is wrong in the first place? The world is plunged into darkness because we as human beings rebelled against God. We took the fruit and we plunged our world into darkness. And God gave us the freedom and he said, okay, you walked away from me. And now he made a great plan to redeem us back. And that's really what the Sermon on the Mount is about, isn't it? And that's kind of what we talked about last week. Remember I said we got to change our language? Right? Most of the time we'll say Jesus came and, he, and he, he made disciples and he had 12 disciples and they turned the world upside down, right? But I said, that's bad language. Don't say that anymore. Jesus didn't turn the world upside down. Jesus came, didn't write any books, didn't drive in a limousine, didn't have a social media campaign, didn't start a nonprofit, didn't travel more than a couple hundred miles away from his hometown. And Jesus and, and 12 disciples Turn the world right side up. Amen? Turned it right side up. And, and, and the Sermon on the Mount is really about the kingdom ethic, the kingdom operations. As I said last week, kingdoms have a way of operating. There's rules in the kingdom. There's ways that kingdoms operate. I told you all the goofy things about uh, over in England, right? And there's ways the queen must walk and even go down steps and, and all these rules for how they enter a place, how they sit. And, and the worst rule of all in their kingdom is that when the queen stops eating, everybody else has to stop eating, right? Bad rule, okay? I don't know why, but, you know, long live the queen. Um, and so, but in God's kingdom, there is a kingdom ethic. There is a thing, a way in which things work, which they were designed and created to work. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is expressing that. And he's saying, hey, you want to know how to turn the world right side up? You want to be a light in the darkness? You want to be salt in the earth? You want to make a difference and an impact in a world that's dark? Here's how you do it. And what does he say? As you're looking there, he says, hey, be poor in spirit. Be one who mourns. Be meek. Be those who hunger and thirst for righteous. Be merciful. Be someone who's pure in heart. Be someone who is a peacemaker. And we're thinking, well, that kind of person is going to get trampled on. I thought, this is a dog-eat-dog world. you got to be tough. you got to be strong. And Jesus says, nope. Turn the world right side up. And this is how my people act. This is how my people who are filled with my spirit walk. Amen? So there's a new way of living for believers. Speaking of light, could we get the lights up, um, the house lights up? That would help me and, and some of our eyes. And as we're doing that, I have a few things that I brought with me. I want to turn your attention to the screen because uh, Professor Thomas Schreiner at Southern Baptist Seminary had this to say uh, about the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to share it with you. It says this on the screen. Disciples have a distinct profile over and against the world. They admit they are poor in spirit and are peacemakers and are merciful and endure persecution. They do not hate those who mistreat them. They are not marked by lust and abuse of women. 
They love their enemies. Do not practice religion for the praise of others. They trust God for their physical needs. They do not judge others. And they communicate their difference from the world as they shine as a witness in a dark world. Amen? And so, (coughs) excuse me, swallowed too much air. If we want to make a difference in a dark world, we have got to be distinct and different from the world. Amen? So, I'm going to give you three phrases to write down today. First phrase is this. You are. Reach over, touch your neighbor, tell them, you are. You are. You are. You are. You are. Touch your neighbor. It's okay. You are what? Well, if we're looking at the text here, we'll see two things. You can probably say a lot of things about you are, right? Be careful now. You want to be nice to your neighbor. You are plucking my last nerve. You are a little bit sweaty today. You are so beautiful. You are so beautiful. All right. Okay. Keep going, Pastor. Keep going, Pastor. You are. What does the text say? We're not here to to learn about what, what you think you are. We're here to see what Jesus says you are. And Jesus says, look at verse 13. You are what? The salt of the earth. And then verse 14. You are... The light of the world. He didn't say you might be, you could be, you are. And he's speaking to believers and he's reminding us that every believer is the salt of the earth, is the light of the world. But who is he talking to? He's talking to these people there on the mountain in Galilee. He's talking to peasants and farmers and children and mothers and grandparents, normal everyday people. Think about that for a second. Normal, everyday people. And it says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus was not talking to the elite, folks. He didn't come to the somebodies, to the big shots, to the power brokers, even to the super religious. Right? Jesus didn't come down to the Greek philosophers that were all around that area. He didn't arrive in Greece and say to the philosophers, you guys are the light of the world. He didn't even go to Jerusalem to the scribes and the Pharisees and all the religious experts and say, hey, you guys are the light of the world. No, he's sitting on a hillside with thousands upon thousands of men, women, boys and girls, average everyday people. And he says, you are the common people, blue collar workers, average everyday people. You are the light of the world. In fact, scholars would tell us that saying this in Galilee is even kind of backwards because they looked at the Galileans like the country bumpkins of Israel. They're kind of the backwoods people. Amen. And and even uh, because of their uh, if, if you are familiar with when Peter later denies Jesus later on as Jesus is about to be crucified, they recognize Peter by his accent. Right. We were with some sweet folks. Uh, one of our members, uh, Heather and uh, David, got married. They're new to our church. One of our new members, they got married yesterday, and they had some family in, and, and their uncle and pastor was from uh, where my brother Tony Pepe likes to say, L.A. He's from L.A., otherwise known as Lower Alabama, folks. And, um, and he was there marrying him with the cowboy hat, cowboy boots on. He's a pastor of a cowboy church. And, uh, and we got to talk to his daughters, and, and they were asking me and my wife all these questions. 
She said, do y'all go mudding? And I said, no, we don't go mud here. Have you ever been hunting? And I said, no, we've never been hunting. And, um, and she was asking us all these questions, right? And, and uh, she said, how about fishing? And I said, we have been fishing. And uh, she was asking us all these questions. You know, and, and so we tend to think, right, these people with these accents, right, and we can sometimes falsely stereotype them as people who are uneducated. And that's how people viewed the Galileans, amen? And, um, and so the Galileans were thought of as the country bumpkins, but they are also thought of maybe the religious liberals. They, they just, because they weren't all that intelligent, people didn't really like them. One rabbi, his name was Johanna ben Zakai. He said this, he said, during my 18-year posting as a rabbi in Galilee, you know how many questions people ask me about the Torah, about the Bible, about God's law? During my 18 years of being a rabbi there, people asked me two questions during all the 18 years that I was there. Those backwards, non-God-loving Galileans. And these are the people Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And he would say that to you today, Christian believer. You are secretary, office worker, grocery store employee, stay-at-home mom, cable guy or girl, mail carrier, military personnel, teenager, child. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Truck driver, nurse, barber, retired person, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-grandmother, shoe salesman, student, waitress, mechanic, even those cooped up in a hospital bed. Or in a nursing home. You, sir, ma'am, are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Touch your neighbor, tell him, you're the salt of the earth. You're the, you're the salt of the earth. So I brought my salt with me. I know in modern times, when you say somebody's salty, it's a negative word. Why are you acting so salty today? Right. That's a negative word. But salt was a good thing. It was a positive. It was an encouragement to tell someone they're the salt of the world. So we got to kind of remember Jesus setting the world right side up. Right. So now when somebody says you're being too salty, you got to say, no, 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 that's a good thing. So second term you can write down is this salt of the earth. So you are. And the second thing is salt of the earth. And boy, let me tell you, in ancient days, these fishermen, as people lived around the Sea of Galilee, they knew what salt was used for, right? As they got their catch of the day, there were no coolers and no refrigerators they could run to. What did they have to do? They had to layer it in salt. They had to salt that fish down so they could keep fishing before they could make it to the market, right? Salt was a preservative. They spread the salt, shake the salt around. That's what we're called to do as believers, and it preserves things. It stops decay. That's what we do as salt. It arrests atrophy. It disrupts decomposition. It prevents perishing. It ceases spoilage. It halts corrosion. It defeats death. And even salt is used as a cleansing agent. Those of you who work uh, giving IVs when they clean out, or you don't have to work around IVs. Some of you have gotten more IVs than you care to share, right? And, um, and what do they clean the line out with? Saline, which is salt. Water is a cleansing agent. Salt also adds flavor and it creates thirst. Amen. Look back at the text. It says, you are the salt, the salt, the cleansing agent 
something that stops decay. We live in a decaying world and we are placed as salt to stop the perishing, to stop the corrosion, to stop the decay and the rotting that is happening. But watch, stay with me, right? You are the salt of the earth. The worse our world becomes, the greater the need for salt. Amen? You are the salt of the earth. And sometimes Christians believe that we are the salt of the salt shaker. We are the salt that belongs in the cabinet, closed up behind the church doors. We are the salt that belongs in a safe place. We don't ever need to come out. Unless I heard one old preacher say, get the salt out of the shaker. Amen. That's what we are called to do as believers. Your salt has got to get out. Because you're called to be the salt of the earth. Salt the earth around you, the people around you. And it's everyday actions. I heard the story told by Earl Palmer, who wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount. His book was called The Enormous Exception. And he tells how one college student who was at UC Berkeley, he was studying to be a doctor. And this pre-med student had doubts and questions about Christianity and was not a believer. But one day he was hit with a severe case of the flu that kept him down for 10 days straight. He was in the middle of a very challenging and difficult organic chemistry class. And some of you flinch when I say the word organic chemistry. If you took that before, you know why you flinch. But during his absence, a Christian classmate decided to help him out. He took copious notes in class and he collected a stack of assignments for his friend. And then he took time from his own studies to go and to help his friend and his classmate catch up on the work. And he took time away and spent time, hey, this is what the professor said, and, and, and these compounds go here and there, going through that. And he's reteaching it to him, not just giving him the notes and saying, here you go. But it was later on that that pre-med student credited his classmate with the reason why he became a Christian. Because one classmate decided to help him take notes and bring his work to him. That's what we call being salt, folks. I'm not talking about some big evangelistic campaign where you go around shouting, Jesus loves you, everybody. I hope you know that. Going down the hallway, Jesus loves you. Hey, you, don't forget, Jesus loves you. All right, yep, no. We're salt, light. You take the salt and you sprinkle it through small actions, sometimes through big actions. But he says this. He says, quote, he says, you know, what my friend did just isn't done. He helped me without any requests from me, without any fanfare or without any complaints. I wanted to know what made my friend act like this. I began to come to church with him and hear the gospel. And this is what he said, I think is one of the best statements. I felt more alive around this friend. Why? Because his friend was salt stopping the decomposition. He was bringing life to him because his friend was filled with Jesus and his classmate. And he told him, God loves college students. God loves pre-med students. God loves janitors and everybody in between. Just wherever God has placed you, get the salt out of the shaker. Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany, as I said last week, was, was working against Adolf Hitler. But he said this. He said, one act of obedience, one act of obedience is better than a hundred sermons. You remember that. As you live your life, and I know you want to say, my pastor is just a great preacher. He's a great preacher. But you're a better preacher through your small acts of obedience. Amen? 
So the question for us is this. Listen to me now. Does a person feel more alive from being around you? Is there a thirst being created from the carefully selected times that you are salt and you shake the salt? Do you make your neighbors or your coworkers wonder why you're so caring? Do they wonder why you're so courteous? Do they wonder why you have integrity? Do the neighborhood kids want to come to your house because of the way you treat your children? Are you being salt? Are you drawing people like a magnet? We must get out of the shaker, amen? Not meant to stay in hiding. I love the quote, which I've shared a number of times from the old missionary and pastor C.T. Studd. I quote it a couple times a year. I hope you'll remember it. He says this, though. He says, some want to live within the sound of a chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Some want to live in the safety of the cabinet and the cupboard, but God has called us to go out and to be salt and light. Now listen, I'm not talking about, right, overdoing the salt, right? You know, I'm not you know, called to be salt and spread the salt around, right? We're not called to just be like, hey, hey, buddy, let me just dump it all out, right? Because that, that doesn't do any good either, right? Some of us get a little too excited. Some of us get a little too much, and we just dump everything we got on somebody and just, hey, Bill, take a look at this. Let's read the Bible from beginning to end in our 15-minute work break. Right? No. Salt's preservative. It's a flavor enhancer. It creates a thirst. I'll tell you just uh, an opportunity as I was in my neighborhood and uh, Stephen Charbonneau and I were there. And, and, um, and uh, as we were praying, just out in the court in front of my house after a little run we did, and uh, my, my neighbor came up to me and said, Hey, where do you go to church? I didn't have to go hunt her down. Man, she's been watching us. She's been watching our life. She's drawn. Not to Daniel Mackey, because Daniel Mackey is a sinner who is a mess. But because Jesus Christ was kind enough to put his Holy Spirit and his light inside of me, and every once in a while I get out of the way, folks, and I, and I get my dirty self out of the way, and God is working in me, and I become a vessel, and God shines his light, and he creates thirst, and he draws people to himself, not to me, but to himself. Amen. Look at back at the text. You are the salt of the earth, and look at the rest. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? That's kind of a strange question, right? It is no longer good for anything except to be what? Thrown out and, and then trampled under people's what? Hmm. How does a salt lose its taste? In fact, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but salt, sodium, Chloride, NaCl, right, is actually a very stable compound. If anybody cares to go back to those old chemistry days, since I already mentioned organic chemistry. But the reality is, it's actually impossible for salt to become something else. It doesn't become unsalt. So, what did Jesus mean by this? What does he mean by if salt loses its taste? Well, in ancient days, especially in the Middle East, where they were, where the Dead Sea was, they would get their salt from different salt reserves, not how we we get our salt. But in that salt would also be another mineral, another white powder. And because they didn't have uh, all the scientific stuff and microscopes, they just gathered up all the white stuff together. And they would put it in uh, carrying cases. And, and LSMP would use that salt 
And the only way to tell the difference between the mineral of salt and this other mineral that also was in that area was to taste it. Oh, and, but they would say, oh, this, this salt has lost its taste. No, the salt stays salt no matter what, right? You can leave salt in your cabinet forever, right? I know it might get a little moist and all that sort of stuff, and, and, uh, but it still has all the same chemical properties. If salt loses its saltiness, loses its taste, it's not salt. So the question is, are you salt? Now, here's what can happen. Sometimes we can get mixed around with some impurities, right? Because salt can get mixed around in the dirt and, and get hooked up with the world. We can lose our taste and be confused for something else. Be confused with something that's not salt. Does that ever happen in your life, believer? Notice what happens. Notice what Jesus says. Look back at the text with me. He says, right, if salt loses its saltiness, it is no longer, it is no longer good for anything. You've heard that phrase for? Good for nothing. Good for nothing. It is no longer good for anything. How many of you know your purpose is tied up in you being salt and light? You have a purpose in life. And, and forget the details of whether God has called you to be this or work this job here or go to school or live here or live there. God has called you first to be salt. And that is where your purpose is. You can be salt in any city, in any school, in any neighborhood. Are you salt? Don't be mixed up with the impurities of the world, right? Don't, don't forget to continue to abide in Christ and read the word regularly. Do you know what I'm saying? That's how we lose our saltiness. Don't forget to stay connected to Christ through prayer. Don't forget to gather with the believers to worship Jesus. All those things start to happen in our lives and we pull away from God. We start to lose our saltiness because we're getting mixed in with the things of this world. Amen. So you are the salt of the earth and then you are Here's the third phrase, the light of the world, the light of the world, the light of the world. Tell your neighbor, tell them you are the light of the world. Oh, come on. I mean, what, what, really? All of a sudden you don't like your neighbor anymore? You are the light of the world. Tell them that. Got myself a little flashlight here. Does this little job? Is it still on? There we go. Even a little flashlight can do its job, right? The light of the world. Look at verse 14, right? What's the purpose of light? What is the purpose of light? It's simple. Dispel darkness, right? That's what light does. It goes forth and it dispels darkness. That's the main purpose. And, and you know how it is to live in the darkness. You know how it is to have a dark house and bump around and stub your toe, step on a Lego and fall over a, a potted plant or something like that and yell words that are not salt and light. You know what I'm saying? I've been in some dark places and some dark times in my life and I've needed the light. And we forget, right? We forget what it's like to live in darkness. I remember I used to go with my family to upstate New York and my aunt had a house out there in the country and I, I grew up here. I didn't grow up like those girls in lower Alabama. And, um, and so I'd never been out in the country. And so out, and I had to go to New York to go out in the country, by the way. It's kind of ironic. And, um, and there was this little community built around the lake. And that's where my aunt had a house. We'd go there and stay. Man, when it was nighttime, listen, folks, it was nighttime. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. I never experienced that before. And I was scared to walk back to the cabin. So um, uh, 
there were different trails that would go behind different houses, and there was like a main walkway and some gravel road and all that sort of stuff. But I remember being, I wanted to hang out with the other kids, the other teenager. I wanted to pretend like I was having fun, you know. And so I was hanging out with other teenagers. We're playing cars, playing spades, something like that. And, and all of a sudden, it's time to go home, and it's 10, 11 o'clock. And, man, there's no streetlights on. And i got to get back to the house. And all of a sudden, you know, flashlight stopped working. Now, I'm probably 14, 15 years old, but let me tell you this. I, I was I was running like a lion was chasing me because, man, it was dark and I couldn't see. And I'm just I don't know what's around me. I don't know if something's going to come out of the bushes. I don't know if some crazy axe murder is going to come out of another cabin. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I'm scared, folks, because it's dark and I need a flashlight so I can find my way home. And my, my uncle's cabin had this humongous driveway. And, man, when you drove up the thing, you felt like you would tip backwards sometimes. And, then, you know, it's just gravel. And, and uh, man, I would run up that thing like I was. Jackie Robinson. I was like, digging it up there because I had to get home and I come in and then you try to catch your breath when you open the door because all the parents are sitting around, you know, and and hanging tight. And you're like, hey, good night. I'm like, why are you breathing so hard? And I'm just scared because it was dark. I needed. I needed a light, even a little tiny light is helpful. And we forget that the majority of the world lives like that. Scared. I remember one time, and I see Miss Rhonda Jenkins here. She's been to Camp Alkulana out in the western part of Virginia. We took students there for a fall retreat one time. That was the first time I went caving. And, um, and, and, and by the way, I was a leader, but I really wanted to go caving. I didn't know what was going to happen in there. And, um, and there was a teenage boy who was dating a girl, and he was so tough and everything else, he let his girlfriend go in there, and he was a little too scared to go in there. And so I was out there. I had to chaperone this kid, and, um, and uh, that, that was my job. Chaperone this kid who doesn't want to go caving. I'm, this is my only chance to go caving. You're going to get in that cave, boy. And so I had to coax him, not because I loved him and cared for his concern, because I wanted to go caving. And so I was like, come on, man. You can't let your girl see you like this. And, uh, you know, I just used wonderful uh, Christ-like words to build him up. And uh, But but I got to that cave, and, um, and, man, they get in there, and then everybody turns off their flashlights. And I'm not telling you what. It is pitch and you're doing this, right? And I can't see a thing, right? I'm like, is this real? And then your mind starts playing tricks on you because it's so dark. And then they just light one little match. And let me tell you how powerful one little a match in that dark cave. And it just illuminates all these things that were freaking me out before. You, sir, you, ma'am, are the light of the world if you know Jesus Christ. You are the light. You are that match in a dark place. And that's where God has you. And so, listen, we must never be content as Christians to shine the light on ourselves. And that's what we do often as Christians. Hey, everybody, look at me. Or then we go and do this. Oh, let me shine the light on some other people in my church, right? Right? And Christians are famous for shining the light on other Christians and and nitpicking all the stuff that you're not doing right. No, where are we called to shine the light? We are the light of the The world, shine the light on the world and help them find their way. Let's not just gather together and have light parties and light studies and sing light songs and have light groups. We're called to shine the light on the world where they need the help. And then notice how beautiful it is, right? Look what it says in verse 14, right? Verse 13, just stay with me. Verse 13, you are the, 14, excuse me, you are the light of the world, a city which, by the way, carries with it the idea of multiple lights, i.e. a gathering of believers, i.e. two or three believers, i.e. 
a community group of believers. So it's not bad to have some believers with you as long as you're going to be a city on a hill. So that what happens? Notice what it says. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You couldn't hide your light if you tried. It's so beautiful. A city on a hill, a bunch of light. Shine your light in your community. Just live a different life. It'll drive people nuts wondering why you don't laugh at the things they laugh at. It'll drive them crazy wondering why you have peace and they don't. It'll drive them bananas, right? Because they don't know why you don't live with the same amount of anxiety and worry. Why you smile more than you frown. Because you're the light. Amen? And it says this. There's a temptation for some of us, right? Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Don't you just love Jesus and his humor? Like how absurd would that be? Right? I put a light and just cover it up with one of these things. Flip that upside down. Like It's just pointless, right? No, do people light a lamp and put it underneath the basket, but they put it where? On a stand, and it gives light where? To all the house. In the same way, verse 16, in the same way, in the same way as what? The same way as a light on a stand, in the same way as a city on a hill, in the same way, let your light shine where? Before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Amen? And as we shine the light, we're not shining it up in their eyes. Hey, Bill, take a look at this, right? Dilate your pupils. No. We're shining it to guide them to their way home. We're shining it to guide them to the truth. We're shining it to encourage them, right? We don't have to, we don't have to stop expecting non-Christians to act like Christians. They don't have the light. They don't know that they should act like that. You're pointing them to the true light. In fact, we're not really like a flashlight, are we? We're a lot more like the moon. I got a picture of the moon, just in case some of y'all hadn't seen it. I mean, I don't know. The moon. What does the moon do? It has no light source of its own, and Christians are a lot like the moon. We are reflecting the light back to others, and we're pointing people to the, the massive light source, the true light source, the true place of heat and warmth. So you're drawing people, right? How many of you ever went outside on a moonlit night? We're like, ooh, ooh, oh, the moon is just, oh, it's, it's blinding me. That never happened, right? I know sometimes it's been brighter than normal, right? And you're like, wow, it feels like it's daytime out, right? That happens every once in a while. But nobody I've ever heard, at least, has been like, I got to wear my sunglasses at night. Okay? That doesn't happen, right? Okay? Because the moon is reflecting back the light of Christ. Amen? So. Man, you don't have to rub their face in salt. You don't have to blind them in their pupils with the light. You're reflecting back the light. You don't have to put people down for the way they're living. Amen? People will flock to you when you are simply a city on a hill. They can't stand the curiosity of why you're different. You're like a light, like, like in the summertime, drawing the bugs, right? Just the bugs just coming around to the light. Some of you are like, I'm tired of the bugs coming around me. I wish I could get rid of them. I don't want to be that kind of light, Pastor. Praise God you're that kind of light because it means you're shining and Christ is shining through you that the bugs keep coming to you. You know, I never found a time where Jesus was with his disciples, right? And he was like, hey, hey, guys, hey, guys, listen, we're having a real hard time gathering a crowd. I'm preaching. I'm, I'm Jesus. I'm here on the earth and nobody comes to my meetings. Nobody comes to church at night. Nobody come. Nobody come. That never happened to Jesus. 
In fact, if you look right at the text, uh, uh, the beginning of chapter 5 says, seeing crowds, the end of chapter 4, it says, great crowds followed from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, and Judea. Folks, that's 13 cities that people followed to be around Jesus. He was just the light of the world, and people flocked to him. He was like a magnet. And that's what we're called to be. It was the theologian and Pastor John Stott who says this in a cute little say. He said, I, I, I hope that non-Christians would come up to us and be like this to us, using the little child's song and say, Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Because they would be attracted to us and they would see Christ shining through us and we would be able to tell them, hey, here's why I shine. Because Christ is inside of me. And, and you would tell them your story, folks. That's all you got to do. I once was a sinner. Listen to me. I used to be selfish. I used to be this. And God is still working on me. But if you've seen any good in me, it's Jesus. Let me just tell you that, co-worker. Let me tell you how God has changed my life. And you can know God too, and he'll change your life. And look, we can partner up together at work, and we can make a difference. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you are. I'm going to ask the man to come prepare the Lord's table as we... Prepare for this time as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as they're coming to prepare, I want you to just take some time to reflect on your life. If you've been struggling to shine the light, if you've been struggling to be salt, you feel like maybe you've gotten mixed up with the world a little bit. If you feel like you've been dark, hiding your light under a bushel, you know what you need to do? Oh, you should try harder, you, you filthy little Christian. Just shine your light brighter. Just, just get your little flashlight and strain with all you got. Yeah. Tell them, Caleb. No, that's not what you do. See, because we're the moon. What, what does the moon have to do in order to shine bright? Just has to get itself in position of the sun. And receive its rays. What is, what is a flashlight? Is, is this analogy is not perfect? Have to do in order to shine? It's got to get its batteries. You, sir, ma'am, you need to look to Jesus. The more you look to him, the more he fills you. The more you spend time with him, the, the more you're going to glow like Moses coming down off the mountaintop. And so it's not about trying harder. It's about trusting in Jesus more. It's about looking to the light of his beauty. It's, it's getting yourself in the rotational position just to receive his love through his word. And listen, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's what that's the reminder of. You need him, his body, his blood. And so as you're there sitting in your seat preparing for that, and you're just feeling like, man, I've been struggling. I haven't been the light pastor. I haven't been very salty or I've been salty in the negative way. Then before you take the Lord's Supper, just spend that time confessing to the Lord and then trusting in what he did on the cross for you because it's his righteousness. And listen, as we take the bread and the juice, it's not magical power coming to you. It's as you spend time with Jesus, as you confess to him. And so if you're new here, we're going to pass the plates in just a few minutes and you'll take a cup of juice and a cracker and you'll hold it to the end until we've all been served and then we'll take it together and I'll give you instructions on how to do that. If you're here and, and you're a believer from another church